first reading is taken from John 1, verses 9 to 13, and that can be found on page 98 of the New Testament section of the Church Bible. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world came into being through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to what was his own, and his own people did not accept him. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God, who were born not of blood, or of the will of the flesh, or of the will of man, but of God. Our second reading is taken from Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 14, and this can be found on page 205 of the New Testament section of the Church Bibles. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him in love. He destined us for adoption as his children through Jesus Christ, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and insight, he has made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure that he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to gather up all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Christ, we have also obtained an inheritance, having been destined according to the purpose of him who accomplishes all things according to his counsel and will, so that we, who were the first to set our hopes on Christ, might live for the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you had heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and had believed in him, were marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. This is the pledge of our inheritance towards redemption as God's own people, to the praise of his glory. So all over the place in the last few weeks and growing in intensity and impact has been the offer of a fantasy Christmas. And it's wonderful. You know the kind of thing I mean. All the presents look wonderful under the tree. Perfectly wrapped. And each one matched exactly to the need and the desire of the recipient. Food that is perfectly cooked and wonderfully served and doesn't need washing up. Or there's a washing up elf that comes in and deals with it. Clothes that make us look fantastic and fit perfectly and shoes that don't hurt. And the weather is going to be ideal. Snow on the roofs and the gardens and not on the roads. Not interfering with travel in any way. And there will be television programs that delight and amuse and which everybody wants to watch at the same time. So you can watch together. And it's absolutely the time of the year when fantasy is given to us on every side and drives our intentions and our actions and why not most of these fantasies are for good things or at least harmless ones they can fuel unrealistic desires of course and they can put people under pressure the need to achieve this kind of Christmas can mean spending more than we can afford or creating tensions when fantasy is different from reality and that, or when people have different fantasies and there has to be compromise And it can create too heightened a sense of expectation and the irritation of the subsequent letdown can be painful and can lead us to conflict. Because it's powerful stuff, fantasy. There are fantasies which can change the world for good. 
Imagining a world in which people are able to earn enough to live in functional ways led to the living wage campaign and has changed the world. Imagining a context in which women could take part in society on equal terms has led to various to various efforts which mean that I can stand here and share in the life of the church in the way that I do. Imagining a world in which people no longer die of cancer has led to all kinds of life-saving treatments and will lead to many more. And so we could continue. Imagining things can change the world. And the thing about fantasies is they are very powerful. And if we invest enough in a fantasy, we can begin to live as if it is true and to live it into being. And that can be marvelous. One of the pieces of advice that will be given quite soon, I think, by those who offer to help us lose weight or to get fit is imagine how it will look and how you will feel and how it will be when you achieve it and then live for it and as it and it will happen. And that can be great. And it can be disastrous, and it can bring dislocation and dis-ease into life. There's the fantasy, for example, that our personal life, our individual well-being, is the only really important thing in the world, perhaps the only real thing in the world, and that can lead to a life that exploits both people and the environment to make our dream come true. There's the danger of that fantasy when it becomes shared or at least becomes common to many people is the kind of environmental crisis that we're faced with. And it costs people life and health in too many parts of the world. Or there's the fantasy that others are more important than we are and we only get to take part in the world on sufferance or if we prove our worth by fulfilling others' needs and desires. That our reality relies on meeting other people's expectations and fulfilling their fantasy. So our life is entirely driven by other people's expectations and intentions. And that kind of fantasy, that our worth is in someone else's gift, depends on us pleasing them, stunts growth and flourishing and leads to people denying their identity and their gifts and their well-being and the bitterness and the narrowness and the living death that that creates has its consequence not only for an individual but for a community. Denied the fullness of all the gifts and the abilities and also poisoned by repressed resentment and anger on those who are living out of that fantasy and their partners and their children. For it's often partners or children to whom this unhealthy self-sacrifice is made and they have to struggle to live up to this level of self-offering and the guilt and the irritation it evokes. Have you lived with someone who is a martyr to you? Oh no, my needs don't matter, whatever you want. And we might fantasize that that's a position of adulation and adoration and it's wonderful, but actually all it does is breed guilt and frustration and drives wedges between people. There's a fantasy about what a community driven entirely by our plan and our need would look like. It would, of course, be perfect. It wouldn't have anybody else in it. We can see it working out in too many political spheres at the moment. Me and mine, those like me, are all that matter. Nobody else is actually real, and so they don't count. We can do that in church. We can do it in a family. We can create great distress and frustration in the protest in the process. 
There's the fantasy that we actually control our lives and keep ourselves and those we love safe. And that can lead us into all sorts of behavior that dominates and that limits. To believe ourselves to be in control and therefore act as if we are sets up all kinds of anxiety and projection, controlling behavior, because we aren't always at all in control. Fantasy is powerful, particularly at an unacknowledged level, and it can drive and shape our behavior in ways that are deeply unhealthy, as well as transformative. To all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the power to become the children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. He destined us for adoption as his children through Jesus Christ. Adoption is one of the wonderful practices that give hope and promise to humanity. The capacity of people to care for and incorporate within their lives and their homes others who might otherwise not have had security or possibility or flourishing. And there are all kinds of reasons that can lie behind adopting, but central to it is the desire to love and to welcome. And there are all kinds of problems that can surround adopting, Because by its nature, many of those who are in that kind of need can bear scars that run very deep. And understanding all of that can inform and deepen what it means to be children of God in the way the Bible speaks of it. Not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, but by the choice and decision of God. Our incorporation into what we call the family of God is not of our doing. Not created by our birth, or our membership of society, even our membership of the church. It's God's action and God's grace. And as we come to the celebration of the incarnation, it's a powerful time to remember it. As we give and receive gifts, as we revel in the depth of relationship, but that's one of the delights of our lives, as we recognize again the givenness of it all, so we affirm and reaffirm and give ourselves to this grace of God that is gift and life and hope. But adoption into a family is not straightforward and uncomplex. I once had a conversation with a friend who was adopted. One of those conversations you have as a teenager when your parents are a nightmare. And I confessed that although I knew I wasn't, I often wondered if in fact I was adopted because I seemed so different from my parents in outlook and approach. My mother used to refer to me as the changeling, um, partly because everybody in the family except me loved to travel and to explore and has a very good sense of direction. And all of those things are conspicuously lacking in me. And I confess that on occasions I had a fantasy about who my real parents would be. They'd be people like me who just wanted to close the door and stay at home and who didn't laugh at me for doing that. And my adopted friend confessed to something similar from another point of view. Knowing herself adopted, on the occasions when she fought with her parents, she had dreams of her real parents who wouldn't be the kind of irritation that the parents she was living with were being. Now, fortunately, we were both so well-loved and had such sensible parents, apart from the changeling thing, that um, none of the relationships were actually in any real danger. And we both were secure enough in that, actually, to laugh at ourselves and each other and to go on enjoying living with our families. But the memory remains. And with it, that memory of the fantasy to try and remake my parents in my image of what I wanted them to be. He destined us for adoption as his children. He gave them power to become the children of God. We are the adopted children of this God whom we meet in Jesus. 
And we need to beware of fantasy and of making this father in our own image to match our own desires and expectations to make us feel better and more secure and more at home on our own terms. Because fantasy is powerful, particularly at an unacknowledged level. And it can drive and shape our behavior in ways that are deeply unhealthy. When we affirm the doctrine of the incarnation, we are saying all sorts of huge stuff. But at its heart and its most complete sense, what we're trying to get hold of is the conviction that a former Archbishop of Canterbury, Michael Ramsey, once said, God is Christ-like, and in him there is no unchrist-likeness at all. And in looking at Jesus, we are challenged about our fantasies of who God is. And the more clearly we look at Jesus, the more we are drawn into a deeper and truer relationship with the one who has adopted us. If we're looking for a God who will keep us cocooned and removed from danger, who will be in control and beat the bullies and the baddies, we're confronted with a God who chooses to be born as a vulnerable infant. And not just vulnerable in the way that all children are dependent and need nurturing, but vulnerable as member of a community under the control of the empire, who at the behest of that empire has to make, people have to make journeys away from their home even when there's a baby on the way. And then they have to flee when that regime regards his birth as so dangerous that violence is used to remove the threat. The one who has adopted us is not given to invulnerability. If we're looking for a God who will confirm us in our assumptions and our worldview, we're confronted with a Christ who is forever challenging assumptions and opening the boundaries and teaching those around him with parables and riddles rather than neat answers and safe solutions, who tells stories about outsiders who do good when insiders are too busy about fathers who throw their dignity to the wind and go running down the road to welcome home fraudster children, about tax collectors who parade their sinfulness in the temple and get justified for it. The one into whose family we are adopted is not a God of neat categories and easy answers. And if we're looking for a community of the people of God in which we'll be amongst those with whom we have a lot in common and where we will feel secure and confirmed, we are confronted with one who keeps getting into trouble for welcoming in the outsiders, who has supper with those who are dangerous, who listens to the women, and not only the women, but the inappropriate women, people whose sexual life and preference and behavior are not mainstream and approved, and who's notorious for welcoming children when his friends want to keep things decorous and well-behaved and send them away, and who happily tells the grown-up adults they need to be childlike to be present with God, and not in the cute, cuddly way that we romanticize the children, but as unproductive units in a society where every hand was needed to sustain life, and unimportant, and lacking in power. If we're looking for a God to stay safely locked away where we put him, in one part of our lives, or in one section of our thinking, or even one aspect of our language, we trip over Jesus, wandering around the country, getting to know people at work, 
in their homes, in the city, in the villages, in the highest places, in the ordinary things of life, inviting folk to be involved with God, not just in the temple or the synagogue, not just in their piety or their prayer, but in the way they live together, in their attitude to the government as he speaks about tax, in their concern for the distribution of wealth as he talks about building towers and counting costs, in their concern for the life of this world as he talks about the need to find the lost sheep. If we are looking for a God who will enforce good behavior by judgment and punishment, we are brought face to face with this man who insists that the tax enforcers, the collaborators with the regime, the prostitutes, are closer to living with and in God than those who keep the rules. The man who tells stories about open tables and eats with anybody, who breaks the Sabbath laws by healing and feeding, who lets the woman take in an adultery go, who refuses to ascribe sickness to sin, and who heals people of their sin as well as their inability to walk when the young man is let down through the roof. And on the other hand, if we fantasize about a God who doesn't care about judgment and justice and those big words, a God who will let everybody off, then we're brought up short by the presence of one who overturns the tables in the temple and accuses the Pharisees of being whited sepulchres, painted over tombs, who insists that the choices we make and the ways we live matter That if we're not loving people who hurt and anger us most and who threaten us most, then we are not living in and for God. And that this kind of stuff matters absolutely and ultimately in the nature of the kingdom. And that life is not trivial. If our fantasy is of a God who will lift us up out of dangerous and difficult world into safe space where nothing can hurt us. A superhero who will reach in and pull us out. Or who will overcome all that is violent with a greater though of course righteous violence. We're turned around to look at the cross, to see there the presence of a love that far from avoiding pain or withdrawing from conflict, faces it and will not flinch, but goes through it all and calls those who are his followers to do the same. And if, on the other hand, we dream of a God whom we can destroy or from whom we can escape or who will eventually give up on us and leave us alone, then the risen one confounds our expectations. If God is Christ-like, and in God there is no unchristlikeness, then our fantasies of the family into which we are adopted are shown up as that, and we are invited into the truth of being part of the family of God who comes to us in Jesus. And as we give ourselves to that and explore what it means, we're led not only into as much of the truth about God as we can encounter, We're led into deeper truths about ourselves. We are brought out of the fantasy that we are the center of the world. We discover we're part of a much bigger whole, that our life is caught up in something much greater than ourselves, and we're not omnicompetent, nor do we need to be. We're set free from the need to do it all as we meet the one who calls us not to be the kingdom, but to observe and notice and pray for and rejoice and take part in the kingdom. And so see it come. We're denied the fantasy that we are in control, that our decisions rule the world. We're liberated from the need to make everyone function in the way that we do and do things the way we think they should be done and see the world through our eyes because we meet the one who calls us to see the world through divine eyes, eyes of love, to look for his kingdom and live with its multiplicity and diversity and discover there's a much greater depth to all things than we can begin to encompass in our limited imaginings. We're opened up from the fantasy that we are perfect, 
as we meet the one who calls us to judgment and shows us what human life could and should be, as we see the truth of being human and we're freed from the need to see ourselves as perfect and instead we can see that we fail, we sin, we are broken and we break. And it's a relief because it lowers our need to defend ourselves and our actions against all comers. We can see where and how we get things wrong and accept the forgiveness that comes when we repent. And we're released from the fantasy that we have to rescue ourselves or make ourselves good enough even when we know, though we're not going to let anybody else know, that we're not perfect and we're flawed and damaged and we hurt those around us. As we meet Jesus, we are drawn into the family of God not by our intelligence or our capacity or our deserving or our intention, but by the choice of God, and that is unchanging and unchangeable. Fantasy changes the world for good or ill. Fantasy can be a bit of fun, or it can open new doors to discovery and possibility and make things healthy and good and wonderful, or it can hurt and maim and kill. Fantasies about ourselves are powerful. Fantasies about God even more so. And as we come to Christmas, as we look to the one born in vulnerability and living in openness and dying in shame and raised in undefeated love, so we're drawn to the truth and the grace revealed in him, which is broader and deeper and higher and fuller and more complete and more transforming and more absolute and more wonderful than anything we can imagine. We discover not that we shouldn't have fantasies, but that our fantasies are too small and too narrow and too mean and thin and trivial. We discover love and hope and life and flourishing that far outstrips anything we could make up. And it offers us a truth to live into being, which will do more than change the world. It will remake and redeem and renew it for a coming kingdom. Amen. And so we come to prayer. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Let us pray. Eternal God of self-giving love, mother and father of us all, we turn to you in the midst of the mystery of our lives, searching for acceptance, belonging, and welcome. Too often, too often we have struggled to know who we truly are, and we have hidden even from ourselves behind habits and distractions designed to mask the true nature of our fragile lives. May it be true for us that as we are fully known by you, so we discover who we truly are. And may it be true that as we are fully loved by you, so we discover what it is to be deeply loved for who we are. Release us 
each one of us, from the constant pressure to be someone that we are not. And free us from the feelings of inadequacy that drive us to hide our deepest desires behind masks of our own desperate devising. May we know this day that we are your children, adopted into your family, and help us to grasp the full extent of your love, acceptance, and welcome. So in solidarity with your other children around the globe, we come today to pray for the needs of your world. We think particularly of those who suffer from poor mental health, those whose view of themselves and of the world around them is distorted and who struggle to take wise decisions. May they find in the midst of their distress that your gaze of love remains constant. And may they discover what it means to be welcomed unconditionally by you. We pray for those who are homeless this Christmas. And we thank you for the charities and agencies who work throughout the year to help people discover ways of stable living. We think of the various activities that take place in this building that help those who are homeless or vulnerable, from the food we cook to the friendship we offer. We give you thanks for the work of the C4WS Night Shelter, the Simon Community, our Open Doors volunteers, our Tuesday and Sunday lunches, and all our volunteers who support these. And we pray for the work of Crisis at Christmas, who conduct so much of their training and preparation in this building. We pray for those who are excluded from communities of belonging. So we think of those with physical or learning disability, and also of those who are categorized as minorities in our society because of their ethnicity, sexuality or social standing. May all those who are excluded because of who they are discover in you a welcome that restores their full being. And as your people, we commit ourselves once again to offering your welcome to all those who find themselves excluded. So we give you thanks for the work of the Baptist Union Disabilities Group, the Baptist Union Racial Justice Group, and all those working to include people whom others would exclude. We thank you for the witness of this church in offering a welcome to those unwelcome elsewhere. And we pray particularly for the Soho Gathering Affirm and the 223 Network, who together with us bear faithful witness to your love for people of all spectrums of gender and sexuality. We think of children whose family lives are disrupted through divorce, 
bereavement, inadequate care or deliberate abuse. We pray particularly for those who are growing up within the care system rather than within stable and loving families and who will spend this Christmas in places where they do not feel fully welcome. We think also of the children of refugee families separated from the stability of their birth country and living lives of uncertain future. May all these discover that your love transcends human weakness and that your welcome can restore what others would destroy. We pray for the work of London citizens as they, with us and other churches, seek to transform the lives of refugee families. And we pray for the social services and school teachers who are entrusted with taking difficult decisions in the best interest of the children in their care. And so as we approach the celebration of the birth of your son, and as we remember the stories of uncertainty and fear and dislocation that surround your coming into our world, may we grasp afresh what it is to welcome you into our world and lives as you welcome us into your family. In the name of the God who comes to us in Christ, we offer these our prayers. Amen.